0: You know, we say it regularly, that Advent is a season of waiting. It's the season of preparing for the birth of a child. And and this has come home to Jillian and me in, in really a different way this year, as we've been waiting for the birth of our first grandchild. Our son Taylor and his wife Natasha announced last spring she was expecting, and they weren't going to find out themselves or let anybody know the baby's gender until the birth. And then yesterday, Jill and I received an announcement of new life. That Taylor called us from Australia to let us know that their child was born. And that Natasha had given birth to a son. Thank you, I had such a huge part in this. But I want you to know, his name is Callum McLean Glass. And I want you to understand this. I speak to you now with the wisdom of a grandfather. (laughs) So you better start listening to me now. And really, uh, before we move to our text today, in the first part of this today, I really just want to reflect a bit on this Advent season through which we're journeying as we move towards Christmas. Again, Advent is a season of waiting. It's a season of preparation in which we prepare for four weeks for the coming, for the arrival of Jesus. And This Advent season, I want us to remember, is actually quite a countercultural season I mean, we can tend to think that Advent kind of matches up fairly well with what society does in preparing for Christmas. Because we look around us, we hear Christmas music playing in the malls. Starbucks gets red and green and pumpkin spice. I mean, Christmas lights and trees are set up in offices and stores. I mean, Christmas anticipation is full on all around us. So you can kind of get the impression that whether you're in the church or outside of it, we're all kind of preparing for Christmas in similar ways. And I just want us to be aware that actually, that's not the case. I mean, for example, just a way to bring this home. I mean, you know that today, generally, in churches as they gather around the Advent candles, what the four weeks of Advent remember, what the candles represent, is some blending of hope, love, peace, and joy. And, and those are great Christmassy words, right? They fit in our day even. But do you know what the four themes of the weeks of Advent were back in the medieval church and prior? They were death, judgment, heaven, hell. Death, judgment, heaven, hell. And we say, why? Were they just really a depressed people back then? They just need to lighten up a little bit? I mean, because really it's a Christmas season. It's love and hope and peace and joy, those fit. But I don't think that was the case back then. I think there was a deeper reason for that fourfold emphasis that really speaks to how countercultural cultural this season is. We say love, hope, peace, joy, the world around us says, absolutely. But we say, death, judgment, heaven, hell? Oh, sheesh. And the Advent, we know, the word means coming, arrival. So this Advent season, it's a season of preparing for, of expecting, of waiting for the coming of Jesus. Again, referring both to our celebration of his first coming, but also to our expectancy of our waiting for Jesus' second coming. And so followers of Jesus across the centuries have recognized that really one of the best ways to do that, one of the best ways to prepare for Jesus' coming is to reflect on why Jesus' coming is something we long for so desperately because Advent is not firstly just a longing for a a family celebration day or an exchange of gifts, as delightful, as good as those things might be. No, we long for the coming of Jesus. We long to celebrate the reality of his birth and to look towards his coming again because only Jesus, provides a way of deliverance from death, from judgment, from the eternity of hell. Only Jesus can provide for us the eternal joy of heaven's reign coming to earth, of eternal life with God, only Jesus. In fact, that's why kind of traditionally the hymns and Psalms of Advent were really often pretty mournful. (laughs) They were in minor keys. But then the hymns and songs of Christmas, which is the season that actually begins on Christmas Day and follows in the weeks afterwards, those songs were songs of joy, of hope, of triumph, of celebration. And so, interesting, that's why the church in earlier centuries, they began singing Christmas carols on Christmas Eve. And then they continued singing them in the following weeks. Because before rushing to the light and joy and answer of Jesus coming, they wanted to be sure to first reflect on what life looks like without Him death without meaning, judgment without hope, hell without God. I and mean, to put it another way, they realized we won't understand how good the good news of the Christmas birth is without first understanding how horribly bad and hopeless the news is without Christ's birth. So that's why we walk in the season of Advent, this season of preparation, of, of waiting, of expectancy. And, and that's why if you are feeling in the season, Man, can we just sing joy to the world? <laughs> the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Can we just sing that? If you are frustrated with waiting, feeling, I, I, I want to celebrate the arrival of Jesus, then you're getting it. That, then you are in the right place. Because, friends, I tell you, it would make sense if on Christmas Eve, kind of like at Best Buy and Black Friday, If we had our people waiting outside the church for the church doors to finally be unlocked so we could all rush in, considerate of one another, and sing together, he rules the earth with truth and grace and he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. That would make sense. So all that's just preparation, all right? So then, in light of that, if that's the season we're walk through, walking through, to guide us this Advent in our journey toward Christmas, we're therefore going to, going to focus on one of the leading characters of the Christmas story. If you've been with us in past Advent seasons, we have kind of fittingly, we've looked at Joseph, at Simeon, at Shepherds, at the Magi, other characters to, that we could look to to try to glean from their stories and, in helping us understand what happened at that first Christmas. But this year, we're going to focus on the key person in the Christmas story, apart from Jesus, God. We're going to look at the woman who is rightly called the mother of God. And that title, it sounds kind of inappropriate, doesn't it, in one sense? It, it almost feels like when you hear it, okay, I think that's going a bit too far, the mother of God. But that is indeed what Mary was. She was the one who gave birth to, was the mother of Jesus. And we believe and declare that Jesus is God in the flesh, right? So yes, this young woman, likely this teenager, was the one Jesus called. She was the one God called, Mom. Or if it was in the Hebrew language, Ima. And so we wanna learn from Mary, how we too can walk with God. So we'll be looking at Christmas this year through the lens of Mary, all right? And we're going to begin this in an unexpected place. Would you turn in your Bible or Bible app to Acts chapter 1? Now in Acts 1, here we read of Jesus. He's, this is following his resurrection. He's gathering his followers together. He's just about to ascend to heaven. And this passage we're going to read, it has kind of a special significance that I'm going to talk about in a moment. So listen to these words that Jesus shares with them. Let's hear it in Acts 1. And as we hear it, remember, this is a word of God. In verse 8, we read, Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, in all Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And then they returned to Jerusalem from a mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Amen. So over these weekends in Advent, we're going to look at Mary's story in a kind of a different way. We're going to kind of follow the pattern of Benjamin Button. If you saw that movie, I didn't, but I know how the story goes. We're actually going to start in the later years of Mary's life. And then each weekend, as we move towards Christmas, we're going to move earlier in her life and story. All right? So we're going to begin today with this Acts 1 text, which holds special significance in that this is the final description we have in Scripture of Mary's life that mentions her by name. And so we wanna to ask together, what did Christmas mean to Mary as she walked in the final years of her life? Now I want you to know, this is kind of a bit of a challenge to teach on the last year of Mary's life because there's really not much we know about her. In fact, there's one verse in the Bible that talks about what happened to Mary and references her by name after the resurrection of Jesus. Only one verse. Acts one fourteen, what we just read. Again, Galatians 4, Paul there refers to Mary, but doesn't mention her by name. And some also think that the woman mentioned in Revelation 12 is a reference to Mary in some sense. But only in Acts 1.14 is Mary mentioned by name. Okay, so that means that what we have to do, we're, if we're going to understand Mary's life after Jesus' resurrection, we have to look at some history. We have to look at the tradition of the church and what that says. And by doing it, it will also help us understand where different teachings about Mary in the Christian tradition come from. Because you might have noticed that the teaching in some Christian traditions about Mary is far more extensive than in our evangelical tradition. You ever notice that? So, where did these other ideas they get about Mary come from? Well, to answer that, we're going to do some history. All right, because here we love history, don't we? Yeah, we do. So here's the deal. Don't even answer, you do. You love it. So we know this, though. We know that we kind of Protestants, we're we're kind of leery about giving too much weight to anything that isn't written in Scripture, isn't the New Testament. But we also know that our Eastern Orthodox, our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, they're, they're much more open to kind of the oral traditions and stories that have been passed along literally for centuries about the biblical characters like Mary, so just so we're clear about this, in, in our kind of Protestant tradition, we would say that those stories and histories that are outside of Scripture, that have been passed along even for centuries, we would say, boy, those can be very informative for certain, but they don't carry the same weight and authority that the actual writings and teachings of Scripture do. Just want us to be clear on that. All right, so with that perspective, Let me summarize then how 1.4 billion followers of Jesus in the Orthodox and Catholic traditions, how they understand what happened in the final years of Mary's life. And, And this is what they understand and largely it's from sources other than the New Testament. So two thirds of the Christ followers in the world, they actually remember the death of Mary, the passing of Mary every year on uh, August 15th, every year. For the Catholic Church, they call this the Feast of the Assumption. And our Orthodox friends, they call it the Feast of the Dormition. And Dormition just comes from a Latin word that means to sleep. It's kind of a euphemism for death in that way. So understand that Orthodox and Catholic Christians, they understand Mary's death in slightly different ways. But they really do share a lot in common as well. So the Catholic understanding is that Mary was taken bodily up to heaven, either before she actually died or just after she died. So they say she was assumed up to heaven. That's the word assumption comes from. She was taken up into heaven, her soul but also her body, as a special way of honoring her faithfulness to God. And we tend to respond... Come on. I mean, the idea that she was taken bodily up to heaven, where does that even come from? And and we'd also note that Mary's assumption, that wasn't even a set kind of theological dogma in the Catholic Church until 1950, when Pope Pius XII made it a dogma. But our Catholic friends would respond to us, well, that's true, but Mary's assumption had actually been taught by the early church fathers as far back as the 6th and 7th century and subsequent to that in the church. And our Catholic brothers and sisters would also say, besides that, read your Old Testament. I mean, they would point out that the Old Testament said that this is exactly what happened to at least two people in Old Testament times. They would note it happened to Enoch. Genesis 5, Hebrews 11 tells us that. They would also note that's exactly what happened to the prophet Elijah. 2 Kings 2 says that he, before he died even, was taken up by a chariot of fire to heaven. So they would point to these things and then would say, okay, if, if Mary is then the most remarkable human being who ever lived, apart from Jesus, if she did indeed bear God in her flesh, if she raised and cared for and trained and prayed for Jesus as he grew up, If she was the only human being who was present at both Jesus' birth and his death, if she stood at the foot of the cross and suffered as only a mother could suffer watching her child abused and killed, if there was no other human being who Jesus would have loved the way he loved his own mom, then it shouldn't surprise us. That Mary would be lifted up to heaven in the way that Enoch and Elijah were. So that's what our Catholic friends would typically tell us and believe. Okay, now Orthodox Christians, they believe that Mary actually did physically die, but they then believe that she was bodily resurrected three days after her death and then was bodily lifted up to heaven. Kind of similar to Jesus rising from the dead after three days. And and then the Orthodox Church teaches that the angel Gabriel, again, this is the same angel who came to Mary to announce she was going to be the mother of God. That Gabriel, they would say, came to Mary at the end of her life, when she would have been somewhere around 60 to 64 years old, and told her in three days she would be reunited with her son Jesus. Jesus. Now, the thing is, you may have already seen this depicted in all kind of historic artwork without realizing it. In fact, this is a, a painting from the Spanish painter Buena Segna in 1308. There's Gabriel on the left, Mary on the right. The palm branch represents death. It's a symbol of that. This is done all the time in history we, that we can see it. So here's the thing. Whether you believe these stories or not, and they really do kind of have some legendary characteristics about them, they do at least focus our attention on something that is absolutely a conviction of Catholics and Orthodox and Protestant believers. And that's a reality of life beyond death. And that the soul of Mary, if not her body also, has already moved beyond death, that she is indeed in the presence of God, now that she's moved beyond this life. Not really how that happened, I'm not nearly so concerned about, but that it happened, that Mary now lives in God's presence. I am absolutely convicted of by Scripture. Okay, Here's another part. Now, in terms of the location of Mary's passing, there are kind of two different traditions on this. One of the traditions is that Mary died in the city of Ephesus, kind of on the western coast of Turkey. And and we ask, well, why Ephesus? Well, we know this from Scripture. We know at the cross, Jesus looked down, saw the apostle John and his mother Mary, right? John, likely Jesus' cousin, said to John, take care of my mother. Now, we know this also, that John spent most of his ministry years beyond the cross, ministering in the city of Ephesus. So some have put that together and believe that Mary then would have gone to Ephesus with John and had her own home there in Ephesus. Now, kind of the intriguing thing is if you ever go to the beautiful remains of that ancient city of Ephesus today in Turkey, you will see just outside the city, this ancient chapel. And this chapel was built over the remains of a first century home. And scholars, particularly in Turkey, believe that was the home of Mary. That's where she passed away. Okay, so now that's just one tradition. Kind of the far more common tradition is that Mary's final years were spent in the city of Jerusalem. And there are really two spots that are argued to be the place of her final days. One of those spots is commemorated by a beautiful church just outside the old city walls of Jerusalem. It's called the Church of the Dormition. Again, the church of the sleeping, the church of death, is what it speaks of. So that's one place that's rumored to be or thought to be. The second place is actually right beside the Garden of Gethsemane. And many believe that Mary asked to be buried there near that beautiful garden. So even today, if you go outside the gates of the Garden of Gethsemane, just you turn left, you walk down about 50 meters, on the right-hand side, down below, you'll see these doors. You walk down through these doors, down a staircase to what is called the tomb of Mary. And and this is where the Catholic tradition would say that after Mary's death, her burial shroud was discovered there by the Apostle Thomas, but Mary's body was gone. Okay. So however Mary passed... What I really think is most important for us to remember is this. In her passing, Mary had the hope of the resurrection, which points us towards part of the gift of Christmas that I really encourage us to dwell on, reflect on in this Advent season. Because one of the focuses of the Advent season is hope. We lit the hope candle last weekend together. And the hope that we focus on in Christmas is in part to be the hope of our resurrection from the dead when Jesus arrives again. Now, you might be thinking, as Clyde, it sounds more like an Easter theme you're giving us. Do you realize this is Advent we're talking about right now? Yeah. But I want you to know this. Even historically, Christmas and Easter have always been a package deal. They are always viewed together. That's why, kind of interestingly, Advent has traditionally been called Little Lent. That's what they refer to it as. Because just as the season of Lent prepares us for the celebration of new life that Jesus brought at Easter with his resurrection, so the season of Advent prepares us for the celebration of new life that Jesus brought at his birth because you can't separate the two. That the birth of Christ is the birth of the one who would one day say these words as John records in his gospel. This is in John chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said, I am what? The resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Understand, Jesus is the one who would say these words as John 14 records in verse 2. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You know, I think we all have, in one way or another, we have in our minds what that first Christmas must have been like. And, and we sing the carols. They're beautiful cares, carols. We sing about round yon virgin, mother and child. And yet the reality was, there was joy, yes. But it was mixed with pain and sorrow and adversity. And this was actually, too, throughout Mary's entire life. There was this intermingling in Mary's life of blessing, and pain. And that's what we find in our own lives, isn't it? So just try to consider, what would Mary have experienced in her life after the resurrection of Jesus? What would it have been like for her? Because we think of this, we know Mary experienced the death of Christ at the cross, and at his tomb we can only imagine the overwhelming grief she felt But then she had this incredible joy of seeing her son, of seeing Christ resurrected from the dead, and her her son was back. But then not long after that, he left again for a second time. So you wonder, what would Mary have felt in the years after Jesus' ascension to heaven? I mean, scholars estimate that Mary likely would have been, again, a young teenager, somewhere around 14, 15, 16 years old when she gave birth to Jesus. They also estimate she would have been somewhere around 60 to 65 years old when she passed away. And so we wonder, I mean, what did she experience in those later years? I heard an interview this week with a, a, of a woman about that age who is a follower of Jesus. Her name's Roberta, and she lost her son to a tragic death when he was just 31 years old. And, and this is what she said. When you lose a child, you lose part of yourself as a woman. He was inside you. He was your flesh and blood. And so I just feel Mary's pain watching what her son went through. It's an absolutely catastrophic devastation at first when your child dies. You think you can't even get out of your bed. And over time, eventually, you begin to have some level of peace in it. You know he's in a better place. You know you're going to see him again one day. And you look forward to that, and you view heaven in a totally different way than most people, I think. People deal with grief in different ways, she said. And mine was just coming closer to the Lord. I don't know how I would have gotten through it, if I didn't have the hope of the resurrection. I don't know how I would have gotten through it if I didn't have the hope of the resurrection. And you hear her comment that you look at death differently after you've lost a child. I mean, you you know they're in a better place, but you wait for the day when you will see them again face to face. And so you wonder, did Mary think those things? In the 15 or years so that she lived after Jesus' ascension into heaven, is that what she felt? I mean, you can imagine, there would have always been some level of grief that she carried with her. And, And it would have been tempered, certainly somewhat over time, seasoned with the hope of the resurrection. And friends, understand, that's where, what we're to carry with us as followers of Jesus. That, that's the exact hope we can have when we face our own passing, when we face the passing of ones we love. Because part of what we remember at Christmas, part of what we remember during Advent, is that Christmas is, in part, about the resurrection of Christ that would come, and about the hope we can have in Him, because through faith in Him, we truly can have eternal life. That's why the Apostle Paul, he writes to the church in Thessalonica, and this church had been going through times of grief. They'd seen many of their church members fade away, pass, die. They'd have loved ones who had died. Several key beloved members of the church, family members, had passed away. And Paul writes them these words, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, meaning those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Can you imagine it? And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be always with the Lord. Listen, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with the hope that this life is not all there is. Encourage one another with the fact that you will see your loved ones again in the life to come. Encourage one another with the fact that this world will not always be as messed up as it is right now that there will be a day that when everything is renewed, when everything is set right, because this is part of the promise and the hope that came with that child in Bethlehem. One of the great privileges of my life was the honor of being at my dad's bedside when he breathed his final breath. He was on October 4th, six years ago. And I I was with him alone that evening at the hospice and his breathing became very labored. The nurses were saying, the end is near. And sitting beside him, I just reached my hand over to his forehead and said to him, although he couldn't acknowledge it any longer, I love you, dad. And I cannot wait to see you and mom in paradise. Don't you think Jesus said something like that to Mary, to his mother, the last time he spoke to her? I can't wait to see you in paradise, Mom. I mean, you can easily imagine, I think, that he looked at his mom, the mother of God, and said, I will see you again. And this is a hope that we find in Christmas. It's why during this season, even in the middle of griefs, of sorrows, that we might feel, we can focus our attention on the life to come through him, through Jesus, amen? And how fitting then that we come then to this table and we remember along with men and women of faith across the centuries across the world, we break this bread and remember Jesus' word saying, this is my body broken for you. And again, Father, we pray you would nourish us in this meal. And likewise, he took a cup. And Matthew 26 tells us that when he passed this to his followers, he told them after handing it to them, understand this, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine again until I do it with you in my Father's kingdom. That's part of what we remember as we take this cup in his name. So if your heart is for Jesus' day, if perhaps for the first time you say, I, I want him, I invite you to receive this bread and cup. If you're not there yet, there's no embarrassment in passing these elements by. But in this meal, we remember and receive from Christ. So let's do it in faith. Let me pray, and then we'll come to the table. So, Father, I pray by your grace, you would form these realities, not just in our minds, but down to our hearts, our souls that we would live in light of this eternal hope we have in Christ. And even as we journey through the season, Father, we thank you that we both celebrate his first coming and the reality that he's coming again. So we come to this table now, remembering, receiving from him in Jesus' name. And all God's people again say, Amen. Amen. amen.